even said in his prayer, our thoughts were convoluted during this time. That's how you feel when you start a sermon. 1 Kings 15 and 16. Last week our focus was on King, good King Asa. 1 King, uh, Kings 15 11 summarizes his life. It says there, if you recall, Asa did that. What, did what was right in, in the sight of the Lord, like David, his father. Asa was a good king. He loved the Lord. He was zealous for the Lord. He destroys idols. He even puts his family, or, or puts the Lord rather ahead of his family. He gets rid of the queen mother who's related to, because she becomes an idolater. So he puts her out of business. He restored some of the treasuries to the house of the Lord. He trusts the Lord uh, early on, and most of his life has great trust in the Lord. He does falter at the end of his reign. Last five years or so, uh, at the end of his reign, he falters because he puts his trust in the king of Aram, king of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, in a, in a battle rather than looking, or in a situation rather than looking to the Lord. And then he gets the disease in his feet uh, near the end of his life, near the end of his reign. And it says there that he only looked at the physicians, which is no problem. However, it says he did not look to the Lord. He didn't look to the Lord for help during that time. We should always look to the Lord for help, even as we are going to the doctor if we're sick. We should do both in that case. But I don't know why this happened with him, but this is our story, right? This is us. This is who we are. We're in and out. We're inconsistent. And uh, his life taken as a whole, the life of King Asa taken as a whole, is one, the general course of his life is one that he's serving God. There's no doubt about it at all. We'll see it even, even stronger tonight. But now our attention will once again turn back to the kings of Israel, the northern tribe. Remember, Israel split, their kingdom divided between the ten tribes in the north and then the two tribes in the south, as we refer to it. This kingdom is called, that we're going to talk about tonight, is the kingdom of Israel versus Judah. The ten tribes, the northern tribes, that's our focus tonight. It's on the kings of Israel, not Judah. And I believe that this subject of the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, is going to dominate the rest of the book of 1 Kings. And we're going to be presented with a great contrast, a very stark contrast tonight with the kings of Israel versus Asa, king of Judah. Now, if you were disappointed last week when we got to the end of Asa's reign and uh, you, you know, were disappointed in some of the things he did, this man of God, this good king, um, when you look at these guys ruling in the northern kingdom, you're not going you're to realize man, Asa was an awesome guy compared to these guys. There's actually six kings who ruled in Israel during the time, uh, not simultaneously, but uh, one after the other. They ruled during, during Israel during the time Asa reigned in Judah. His reign, his reign spanned 41 years, I believe, Asa did. And uh, like I said, if you're not completely satisfied with Asa at the end of his life tonight, you will think he's an angel compared to these kings of Israel. And tonight, we're going to watch the kings of Israel go from bad to worse. They start out bad, and they get progressively worse, and that's what they do. And these are all brief accounts. I, think, I say six kings, everybody freaks out. Oh, no, we're going to be here the entire night talking about the reigns of six kings. But they're, they're only brief biographies of the first five. The last one, the sixth one, we're only going to get started on a night, barely get into. But I want you to see something tonight. It will be very instructive to see the downward progression of the kings of Israel. Let's start, first of all, with the fall of the house of Jeroboam. The fall of the house of Jeroboam. Look at chapter 15, verse 25. It says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. Notice that these notices about Asa all along. Became king in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years. 
He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha struck him down at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibeathon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. It came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel to sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now Nadab we're talking about right now, he's the son of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel after the divided kingdom. Is, Nadab is his son. And as we all know, Jeroboam, the first king, was a complete and total disaster, wasn't he? He was a bad king. And the six kings that follow him that we're going to look at tonight, they all have something in common. Each of them follows in the footsteps or the way of Jeroboam. They follow in his way. Now, Nadab uh, becomes king uh, during the second year of Asa, while Asa is reigning in Judah. Nadab becomes king. His reign lasted all of two years. And while Asa is over in Judah, not far away, doing right in the sight of the Lord, Nadab is in Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the great contrast there. He walks in the way of his father, mean, meaning he follows the same evil path his father took. Look, look at verse 26. Uh, verse 26 points to a specific sin. It says he walked in the sin uh, which, of his, his father's sin, which he made Israel a sin. Now, what sin was it that Jeroboam, his father, made Israel a sin? It was idolatry. Look back at, so refresh our memory, look back at chapter 12, 1 Kings 12, verse 28. You remember when Jeroboam became king? Chapter 12, 28. So the king Jeroboam consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, that's in the southern portion of uh, Israel, and the other he put in Dan, that's in the northern portion of Israel. He wanted to give two locations, two convenient locations, we might say. Now this thing became a sin for the people, went to, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Uh, Nadab became an idolater, just like his father. His father was an idolater. His father didn't want the people to go back to, to Jerusalem to worship anymore because they might return to the kingdom of Judah, and so he makes it, he makes it possible for them, for them to worship in Israel. And so Nadab becomes an idolater, just like his father. Now, according to 1 Kings 15, 27, Nadab and Israel are engaged in battle uh, against the Philistines. Now, they're fighting over a place called Gibeathon. Uh, Gibeathon is mentioned in Joshua as a place that was allotted to the tribe of Dan. So this is originally territory that Israel should have had. And somewhere along the line, the Philistines conquered Gibeathon. One of that, for some reason, we don't, nobody knows where Gibeathon is to this day, by the way. Uh, no one can, archaeologists aren't able to find that town. But Israel's trying to get it back as part of their rightful inheritance. They're trying to get it back. And so this guy, Baasha, appears on the scene. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Issachar, and he apparently wants Nadab dead. He doesn't like the king, Nadab, for whatever reason. doesn't say why. And so he conspires against him, he conspires with others, and he kills Nadab. 
while this battle is taking place in Gibeath on the siege. And just to show you that there was strong support for the conspiracy, look at verse 28, it says, it, it tells us that Baasha reigned in his place. Now, you don't do that unless you have key people supporting you. You can't overtake a kingdom unless key people are backing you, supporting you. And so he, he takes over the kingdom. And do you know what he does on the first day of office? Presidents talk about, presidential candidates talk about, when I get to be president, my first day I'm going to do this, right? Well, the first day in office, you know what Baasha does? He has the entire house of Jeroboam killed. That was job number one as far as he was concerned. Wipes out the entire dynasty of Jeroboam on the first day of office. Now, he didn't, Baasha had no thought of pleasing God when he did this. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to fulfill that prophecy. He wasn't thinking that. That wasn't his intention. He probably didn't even know about the prophecy. He did it for reasons of his own. He did it because reasons which were sinful, which we're going to find out later. And Baasha really, in reality, is nothing more than a rebel against the kingdom. He's, he's nothing more than a murderer. However, in spite of all that, a greater purpose is served in what Baasha does uh, because um, verse, 29, uh, verse 29 and 30 says this. It says, what he did was according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, that's a prophet, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and he made Israel to sin because of the provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of anger. Jeroboam had provoked the Lord God of anger so much that God wanted him dead. And so that's what happens here. This slaughter of Jeroboam's family is not a random incident. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. How do we know that? Go back to 1 Kings chapter 14. Again, to remind ourselves of what happened, 1 Kings 14, verse 6. This is when Jeroboam had a sick son. We talked about this a few weeks back. And he sends his wife in disguise to Ahijah the Shilonite, the prophet we're talking about right now. And she wants to find out, she wants to inquire of her sick son, is he going to get well? Or maybe can you do something to get him well? And this is what the prophet says to her. Look at 1 Kings 14, 6. When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming, the wife of Jeroboam, uh, coming in the doorway, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another woman? Now, this guy's blind. You remember that? And God gives him this insight. Why well, you pretend to be someone else? I'm sent to you with a harsh message. Go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you, these guys are, you're going to see as we go through this, they're going from bad to worse. You've done more evil than all were before you. You've gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. You've cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam, this is the prophecy of God, I'm going to cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I'll make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Look at verse 14. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel. That king is going to be Baasha, by the way. He's going to raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day 
and from now on. The only one who has a decent burial and a proper burial and a proper uh, uh, ceremony at his burial is the sixth son. And he's, he has a peaceful death. And that's, that's because it says in 1 Kings 14 about that sixth son, there was something good in him toward the Lord God of Israel. In other words, and I believe he knew the Lord God of Israel. No one else in the family of Jeroboam is going to come to the grave peacefully. They're going to be killed. And when they're killed, they're going to be left in the field or in the city to be uh, torn apart or eaten by dogs, wild dogs or birds or these kind of things. And even though 1 Kings does not go into all those kind of details, uh, it does say the word of the Lord was fulfilled. Go back to 1 Kings 15. Look at verse 29. It says, in 1 Kings 15, 29, Baash had destroyed them. He destroyed the house of Jeroboam. In other words, he exterminated them. He annihilated them. Why? Because the Lord was totally and completely fed up with Jeroboam's idolatry. Jeroboam forsook the Lord and is worshiping false gods. He's angry with Jeroboam's deliberate provocation aimed at the Lord. It was deliberate. It was done on purpose. And the Lord is furious because... Jeroboam, it says, made Israel a sin. Did you see that? He made Israel a sin. He caused Israel a sin. Now, when we talk about sin, we always, here's how we talk to people. Here's how we counsel people. Here's how we counsel ourselves. We talk about people owning up to their own sin, right? And if I sin, I need to own up to my own sin. People need to take responsibility for their own sin. They need to confess their own sin. They need to forsake their own sin. They need to repent of their own sin. That's how we say. That's what we say. That's true. We all need to own up to our own sin. But it is also possible to cause others to sin, as it says right here. Jesus spoke about it, even. You know what he said in Luke 17, verses 1 and 2? Jesus said this. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. In other words, it is inevitable that people will cause other people to stumble. But woe to him through whom those stumbling blocks come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Can you cause others to sin? Jesus said you could. He said you can. How did Jeroboam cause Israel to sin? Well, he, he, he didn't want them to go to Jerusalem to worship. And so he was afraid they might return to that kingdom of Judah. So he makes it possible. He makes them, makes them idols so they can come worship the idols. He encourages them to worship idols. And the average citizen, citizen of Israel is not going to argue with the king of Israel. Pretty much going to do what he says. So Jeroboam creates an environment. He creates an environment in which idolatry can flourish. And thus he causes Israel to sin. That's how he did it. Now when it comes to Living for the Lord, it's not all, only about ourselves. Yes, we, I must live for the Lord, but we have to consider other people. We have to be careful that we don't create an environment that makes it, others, it, makes it easy for others to sin. We have to be careful. If we cause others to sin, they must own up to their sin, yes, but it's on us as well. Because we created an environment. We helped to lure them in, you see. We made the opportunity available for them to walk right into it. So we cannot contribute to the sins of others by creating that kind of environment. That's what Jeroboam did. He created an environment 
for people to sin and commit idolatry, and God calls him out for it. That's what he does here. And so this prophecy given to Jeroboam, Jeroboam's wife comes to pass. The word of God is fulfilled. The house of Jeroboam comes crashing down just as the Lord said it would. Word of God fulfilled. Secondly, notice the fall of the house of Baasha. The fall of the house of Baasha. Now, there's two people we want to talk about here in this house, this dynasty, this family. That is Baasha, number one, and then Baasha's son, number two. Notice, first of all, Baasha. Look at verse chapter 15, verse 32. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. There's Asa again. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Terzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. As long as Baasha ruled, he was a thorn in the side of Asa. That's one of the judgments, by the way, of the divided kingdom. They have this war and these friction, this, these uh, battles that take place. And verse, verse 34 characterizes, we, we talk about these kings being characterized by a statement of, of their, the general course of their life. Verse 34 characterizes the kind of uh, man that Baasha is. And we are not surprised to learn that he is an evil man, are we? Shouldn't be. And what does he do? He walks in the way of Jeroboam, and he walks in his sin. Now that's, on the one hand, kind of amazing because Baasha wiped out the house of Jeroboam. And yet he's doing the same exact sin. Jeroboam has this far-reaching influence over people. What he did went far and wide down in history. Everybody continues to walk in lockstep with Jeroboam and what he did again and again. And as a result of this, the Lord sends another prophet and another prophecy. Look at verses 1 to 7, chapter 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, this is the prophet, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalt you, exalted you from the dust, Baasha, and I made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, Behold, I will consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone of Baasha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. And Ella, his son, became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Baash and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, and with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. Now, have you noticed all these prophets cropping up in the book of 1 Kings? Just virtually unknown prophets coming out of nowhere, it seems like, with a message. It's because the Lord, I don't know if you've noticed this in the Old Testament, but the Lord always has a special relationship with kings. His kings in Israel are pagan kings. He's always directing messages to these guys, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, and so on. And the Lord has something to say to these kings. They think they can do whatever they want and get away with it. They cannot get away with it. God confronts them with his prophets. Hey, what you're doing is wrong, and you're going to pay the price for it. That's what, that's what uh, preaching through the, the ages has done, by the way, always confronting people with that which is wrong, warning people. 
encouraging people, trying to help people. They can't just do whatever they want and get away with it. And so here's another prophet. His name's Jehu. Not the same guy that becomes a king later on. It's a different guy. He's a prophet. And he confronts Baash. Now, so far, all we've seen from Baash is this. He's a guy who conspires against King Nadab. He overthrows him, and he kills a bunch of people, right? Basically, that's, that's what this guy does. He also does battle against Asa. And uh, you see that in, in, in this chapter, in the, in the previous chapter. Um, and he also, he's the guy who set up an economic blockade against Asa. So he's, he appears to be some sort of a maverick on the loose, just kind of doing whatever he wants to, answering to no one. That's what it looks like. But now we're introduced to a bigger perspective than that. This is God's perspective. And in verse 2 of chapter 16, we find out who is behind Baash's rise to power. Who is it? It's the Lord. The Lord is behind Baasha, this evil king's rise to power. He's the one who exalts Baasha from where? From the dust, it says. He exalts him from the dust to be the leader uh, of the nation. The Lord is sovereignly at work in these circumstances. Isn't that amazing? In a passage where we're talking about evil kings, God is still sovereignly at work, even in this time. Now, you know, I have to read you, you know, you read these commentaries about these passages. And sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they're completely indifferent. Sometimes you throw up your hand and you wonder what they're talking about. Sometimes you wish they would have said a whole lot more. Sometimes they skip all the problems. And you think, why did you write a commentary? <laughs> you ever had that problem with the study Bible, by the way? I'm looking for verse 3. I've got to find the answer. And you look at it and there's no note on it. That's the advantage of writing a study Bible, by the way. You don't have to answer any questions. But I want to read you what one commentator said about this because... When it says in verse 2, I exalted you from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel, he says this to Baasha. Because it's so unscriptural, and, and I'm surprised at this guy. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is what he says. He quotes this phrase. He says this, I raised you from the dust. He's quoting that phrase. He says, I raised you from the dust is melodramatic. This is God speaking. He says it's melodramatic. And in any case, it's theologically problematic in Yahweh's mouth, to someone who murdered his master. That's what he says. He says, I raised you from the dust is, is a melodramatic statement. And, in any case, theologically problematic, in Yahweh's mouth, to someone who murdered his master. Now, first of all, let me say this. God is not a drama queen. It's not a drama. He doesn't say things that are melodramatic for effect only. Sometimes the Bible says things for effect, but God's not saying something to be dramatic here. He exalts people to whom to whatever position he wants he exalts whom he wishes to whatever position he wishes to exalt them to that's his business what he does he's sovereign over all people that's the first thing secondly this is not theologically problematic it's not it's not a problem for Yahweh it's obviously a problem theologically for the commentator this truth but not for Yahweh not for the Lord he understands it perfectly well the Lord puts a guy in leadership the guy murders people the Lord is not to be blamed for that. The Lord is never to be blamed for the sinful actions of an individual. We don't blame God for our sin. We do the sin. He doesn't sin. James chapter 1 says this. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust, right? We sin. The Lord works through sinful. Here's the thing. The Lord works through sinful individuals. Who else, who else is there, right? Everybody's a sinner. 
So the Lord has to work through sinful individuals to accomplish his own purposes, but the Lord is not at fault. He simply works through the natural state of evil men. Men in their natural state, he works through them, their evil natural state. And guess what? They carry out judgment on other evil men, these evil men do. And that's how it goes. Now, we're going to say more about that in a minute. But Baasha is in a lowly position in life because God says, I raised you from the dust. And the Lord is good to Baasha in, in this. He's taking a nobody. This guy is nobody, according to the phrase out of the dust. And he makes him king of Israel due to the sin of Nadab. But how does Baasha repay the Lord for this kindness, this act of sovereign kindness? He blatantly sins like Jeroboam does. And, he, and so the prophet denounces him with the same judgment that he passed on the house of Jeroboam. The dogs and the birds are going to eat the remains of Baasha's descendants. The only one to get a proper burial, by the way, in this whole, this whole thing is Baasha, probably because he carried out the Lord's will earlier, even though I don't think he even knew it. But to revisit what I was saying earlier about, look at verse 7. Verse 7. It says there, moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet uh, Jehu, son of Han, came against Baasha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. Baasha is being judged on two counts. Number one, his own sin. He is accused of being like the house of Jeroboam, doing the same thing everybody else is doing. You're following in the footsteps of this evil guy. He's judged on that, that count. Number two, he's judged for wreaking havoc on the house of Jeroboam by killing all of them. You get that? He's killed all of them. Now God is judging him for that. So how is it that Baasha fulfills the prophecy of God and, and is also a judge for it? How is that possible? Is the commentator right after all? Is this theologically problematic? Well, once again, we go to Jesus for the answer. By the way, if you want a really good theologian to read, I got a great theologian, a master theologian. He's impeccable in his theology. That is Jesus. Read what he says, and you'll, you'll see things from his point of view. He says, Jesus speaking of himself, says in Mark 14, 21, he says, for the Son of Man, Son of Man is Jesus, for the Son of Man is, is to go. He's to go to the cross. Just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, Jesus, Judas Iscariot sinned by betraying Jesus. However, that even that is included in the sovereign plan of God, that activity of Judas, because and, and God foretold that it was going to happen. That's included. Regard, regarding the crucifixion of Christ, this is included. God did not sin. Judas sinned. God simply incorporated the evil acts of a man that into the events that led to the cross, and, and he even foretold it, Judas is guilty, and he must answer for what he did. He does not get off scot-free. The sovereign of God, plan of God is enacted. Christ is crucified, and yet Judas is punished for his sin. That's how God works. He works in a sovereign way through the evil actions of men to accomplish his will. He doesn't cause them to do this. He's, he's blameless in all this. Baash is not innocent. He's not innocent. He is, he is not serving God to fulfill a prophecy. That's not why he's doing this. It's not why he wiped out the house of Jeroboam. God said that a king's going to be raised. He's going to wipe out the house of Jeroboam. Baasha comes along, 
and all he wants to do is kill people, and he does. He's not doing it for God. He just wants to get rid of Nadab and his descendants for selfish reasons. He wants to be the king. Verse 7 indicates his motives are wrong in striking the house of Jeroboam because, or else he would not be judged for it. So Baasha is pursuing his own ends, his own selfish ends. In all this, the Lord remains innocent. Prophecy is fulfilled. Baasha is punished for his evil. The sovereign plan of God is carried out. The only theological problem caused here is in the minds of those who cannot accept the full teaching of Scripture. That's the only problem. There's no problem with God and his word or any of that. And so Baasha. And then look at Baasha's son. We're talking about the house of Baasha. Baasha's son in chapter 16, verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, who's <coughs> Asa again, king of Judah, Ella. Got to love this guy, by the way. Ella, the son of Baasha, <coughs> became king over Israel at Terza. Terza is the capital this time. He reigns two years. His servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Now, he was at Terza drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household at Terza. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. It's almost as if God keeps reminding us about Asa again and again. It came about when he became king, as soon as he sat on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave a single male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha through Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Ella his son, when they, which they sinned, and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Ella and all that he did, are, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Ella reigns for two years. Two years. And he, no accomplishments are written of him. It doesn't say anything about he built, you know, something, built great building projects. It doesn't talk about the economy. It doesn't talk about wars, any of that. In fact, there's only two things that are said of him, both negative. Um, it says, verse 13 speaks of the sins of Ella. The sins of Ella, and, and a particular sin is pointing out, of course, that sin is what? It's idolatry, right? The same sin his fathers are guilty of. These guys are all enamored with idolatry. They just can't seem to get enough of it. But there's another sin in particular highlighted uh, in this. In verse 9, Ella's in the house of Arza. Arza is the guy who's over the household, probably the palace, of, which is now located at Terza for Israel. And he oversees the affairs of the house. And, uh, this, and, and, and Ella's in this house, and the king is not exactly acting in a manner befitting kings. What's he doing? says he's drinking himself drunk. That's what he's doing. Now, if the king of Israel is drinking himself drunk, he cannot have a clear mind or uh, he's not able to make sound uh, judgments that are sound, is he, at this time? And I get the impression reading this, this wasn't the first time, this was not his first rodeo when it comes to drinking. I don't think it was his first drinking bout at all. And as it, but it, as it turns out, it will be his final party but let me ask you this. Is this any way for the king of Israel to act like a drunken sot? Is that any way for him to act? It's not exactly the spirit of Ephesians 5.18, is it? Which says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Ella's not exactly under the control of the spirit because he's under the control of alcohol, isn't he? 
He's under the control of alcohol. If we're under the control of anything, by the way, besides the Holy Spirit, everything else is a moot point at that, at, at that time. What, let me ask you the question. What is it that controls you, by the way? Ella, I think, was controlled by this. What is it that governs your life? What is it that has a stronghold on your life? What is it that is the biggest obstacle for you to overcome that dampens your opportunity to serve God or makes you ineffective in serving God? What is it? Everybody's got something that hinders them, that makes their life a problem, uh, makes it a problem for them in serving God. These kind of things are hindrances designed to keep you from serving God effectively. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he said, I discipline my body and make it my slave. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We have to guard our heart for out of it flow the issues of life. But Ella was not doing that. So while Ella is getting hammered, one of his chariot commanders, a guy by the name of Zimri, forms a conspiracy against Ella, just like Phaasha had done. And while he is in this drunken stupor, Zimri, I think, knows this, he walks in right at the right time, and he was able to kill the king. Strikes at just the right time. And Zimri then declares himself to be king, and guess what he does on his first day of office? He's got an agenda also. He wipes out the entire house of Baasha, including his friends and relatives, all the people that he knows. He kills them all because he doesn't want anybody to remain alive who can challenge his authority. Kings back, then, back in the day did that when they took over a kingdom, by the way. But this is, a, this, is, this is, in this case, an answer to prophecy. It's a fulfillment of the word of God. The house of Baasha is destroyed just like the Lord said it would. So, in connection with the evil kings of Israel... There's this theme running in the background of the reliability of the Word of God. Two examples are given of Scripture being fulfilled, and it shows us that the Word of God is reliable. Let me tell you this. You can believe the Word of God. Rest yourself upon it. You can believe it. It's always going to come true, and it's a word that's reliable, as these kings demonstrate. It's a reliable word. The house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha both fall. According to what? The word of the Lord, right? As prophesied. Thirdly, look at the suicide of Zimri. The suicide of Zimri, verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Terzah. Now the people were camped against Gibeathon again, which belonged to the Philistines. The people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and has also struck down the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibeathon and besieged Terzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel, the king's house, and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins, which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and in the sin which he did, making Israel sin, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy which he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, Israel is still, king, Asa rather, is still king in Judah. Even while we have this revolving door of kings in Israel taking place, Zimri, I think, may set the record for the shortest reign of a king, seven days. This is 15 minutes of fame. Can you imagine being king for a king for a day? You know, you talk about king for a day. No, king for seven days, and it's over with. He lasts seven days. Israel, again, is trying to reclaim the city of Gibeathon. They, they need to give up on this, by the way. It's not happening. They go back there to try to get the city back. Zimri 
is back in his capital at Terza. The people are in uh, Gibbethon fighting the battle. The people on the battlefield hear about the conspiracy of Zimri. They're very unhappy about this, that he killed the king. And so they decide to leave the battle. First of all, they make Omri the army commander, the king, the new king. They make him the new king on the battlefield. They all travel back to Terza, and they leave the siege at, at Gibeathon. They attack their own capital city. Zimri's in the, in the, in the, in the palace, right, in Terza. Zimri realizes it. He sees the incoming. He knows he's surrounded. He knows he's defeated. And so what does he do? He commits suicide. He goes into the citadel, the part of the palace that's heavily fortified. And there he sets fire to the building while he is inside it. And I take it that he's literally burned alive, if that's what this means. What a horrible way to go. This guy brings judgment down on himself. It's a judgment of God, but he brings it down on himself. Verse 19 repeats the same refrain, because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil inside the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam. Same guy, same thing. These guys never learn. Same sins, uh, same idolatry, same judgment. The northern tribes continue their downward progression. And then finally, the dynasty of, of Omri. The dynasty of Omri. The ten tribes at this point, by the way, are beginning to look at like a third world nation, right? Constant change of leadership. Omri is the lone possible exception. His, his reign lasts for 12 years. But he will have to overcome an initial threat because the kingdom, his kingdom, which is already divided, divides in half again. There's two guys that are going to be vying for uh, leadership, a guy named Tibni and a guy named Omri. Kind of reminds me of the presidential election again. There are people reciting them. Both guys are popular. Look at verse 21. Let's talk about Omri first, and then we'll talk about his son second. Verse 21, the people... Now the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half to the people followed half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevail over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginath. Tibni dies and Omri becomes king. In the 21st year of Asa, king of Judah, there it is again, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Terza. He bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in the way, all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Judah, of Israel rather, with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did and his might which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. This is the 31st year of Asa's reign. He's still reigning in Judah. By the way, can you, can't you see the stability of Asa's kingdom versus the one in Israel? See the stability? You know, Asa's following the Lord. These people are not following the Lord. And Just for a side note here, have you noticed that people who follow the Lord people who serve the Lord, people who obey the word of God, that they, leave, they lead stable lives in comparison to those who don't. Have you noticed this with people? Their lives are stable versus those who are not. Why? Because they're building on the rock who is Christ, right? They're building on the rock, and that means stability. Asa and Judah at this time equal stability. You got the kings of Israel and their people equaling, and they're changing kings uh, equaling instability. Now, I'm going to give some credit to Omri because he reigns for 12 years. 
That beats a week, right? That beats two years. We've seen several times. Does he do anything positive? Well, he buys a city, it says. City of Samaria. He bought it from a guy named Shamir. Samaria, by the way, is 12 miles west of Terzis as the capital moves again. Samaria is, sits on a hill about 300 feet high, and you can look down and see things and have a good view, and there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's trade routes going through there. It's a good thing for the economy. Omri feels like this is a good place for new capital, and guess what? This will become the capital of the northern kingdom from now on, Samaria. And history comments on this. Not only the scripture, scripture is history, but records outside of the scripture comment on Omri's reign as well. Verse 27, look at verse 27. He makes, it talks about the might which Omri showed. Now there's a stone that's been found in Moab called the Moabite stone in archaeology. And on it are written, are words written by the king of Moab, and these are the words. Talking about Omri, it says he, Omri, humbled Moab many years. It couldn't have been more than 12 years. That was written by the king of Moab, who obviously, Omri maintained some kind of military presence in Moab if he's humbling these people. And then, for, for 100 years following the reign of Omri, which is only 12 years, Assyria, Assyria referred to Israel as the house of Omri. So apparently he impressed Assyria, and that's recorded in historical documents, like I said, outside of the Bible. So Omri was unlike Zimri in that uh, Zimri couldn't think ahead seven days in the next plan. Omri could. And Omri is unlike Ella, who was a party animal. Uh, he has more smarts than those guys do, I will tell you that much. But the writer of 1 Kings doesn't care about all that. He doesn't care about all that. There's only one thing that writer of 1 Kings is concerned about, and that is what kind of relationship to the Lord does Omri have? What is his relationship to the Lord like, or his lack of a relationship? In this case, his lack of relationship, verse 25. Again, the redundant refrain, Omni did, Omri did evil inside the Lord. Uh, and yet, there's, it's almost boring, isn't it, to read these words again and again and again? It's almost becoming redundant, so redundant and so boring to the point of everybody's doing this. Um, but there's something else added here, something new. And it says in verse 25, he acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Man, they're trying to top each other, aren't they? That's not easy to do. Jeroboam set the bar high for evil. And yet these guys continue to go beyond that. Moab, Moab may have been impressed with the might of Omri. Assyria may have been impressed with the might of Omri. But God is not impressed with the sins of Omri, is he? He's not impressed with that. We've already witnessed how the Lord took down two dynasties. He can do it again. He will do it again. And, uh, you know, Omri leaves this legacy of sin behind, topping uh, even Jeroboam. There's no prophecy of, of a dynasty being wiped out here, by the way. It doesn't say that. Um, not yet, at least. Verse 28 just says he sleeps with his fathers. He's, he's, in other words, he dies. He's buried in Samaria, the new capital. That's it. What about judgment on this guy's dynasty? Everybody else is. Well, it's coming. It's coming in future chapters. Don't worry about that. And don't fail to notice the last phrase of verse 28. And Ahab, his son, became king in his place. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, Omri, in addition to all his evil, contributes this legacy to Israel, a son who is worse than he is. And that brings us to Ahab in verses 29 to 30, and we'll close. Verse 29, now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, oh my goodness, there's Asa again. 
king over Israel, and it says, a king over Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Asa is still king. Ahab does reign for 22 years, but it's 22 years of wickedness. Ahab even manages to outdo his father. He does worse than any king before him at this point. We are going, do you see the downward spiral here? The kings of Israel go from bad to worse. Isn't that the way of the world? It goes, it's been going from bad to worse. Ever since Adam sinned, things have gotten worse and worse. You know, the post-millennialists don't think that, do they? Post-millennialists are optimistic optimistic about the world. They think that things are going to get better and better. They think that if we preach the gospel, more and more people will get saved to the point that the whole world will eventually become Christianized. Think it's going to happen? Nothing further could be nothing could be further from the truth than that. There's a verse in the New Testament that nicely summarizes this whole thing, that, that nicely summarizes the downward nature of mankind. It's the verse, Stephen read it, the passage, 2 Timothy 3. <clears throat> it's a verse said in the context of the last days, 2 Timothy 3.13. It said earlier, godly people will be persecuted, but it says in contrast to godly people, it says in 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men, evil men and imposters will see, proceed from what? From bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men will always proceed from bad to worse. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by all the crazy stuff that, that will be taking place, that has taken place in our country, all the evil that's taking place. Don't be surprised by it. Evil will always be with us. It will always influence us. It's always going to be here. So the question I have in closing, how does a believer live in an evil world? How are we to live with all this going on? First, we must remember that Christ delivered us from this present evil age by his death and resurrection. He delivered the believer from that. He has credited us his righteousness. And by the way, apart from him, we're still dead in our sins. We're like these guys. But I think as we look at this passage, the signal that keeps coming up again and again, King Asa, I think King Asa shows us the way. I think he shows us the way to live in the midst of evil because he lived in the midst of evil. Now, he failed at times as we will do, but the general course of his life was one of godliness. We saw that last week. He was a man who knew God. He truly belonged to God. And, he, and yet he's surrounded by evil. He's living in very close proximity to Israel. And he, see, and he has to deal with these people periodically. And he knows what it is. He knows what they're doing. He's got to put up with their foolishness. So how does Asa teach us to live in an evil world? Well, like Asa, we should do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, though all the world around us is living an evil life. He did it. We should do that. He was a follower of God. It's a follower of God act. We should do good and right regardless of the evil in our world. Like him, we should cultivate a, a heart after God uh, as David had because Asa made David his pattern. And we should cultivate a heart for God like David had. Like Asa, we should get rid of anything that pleases the Lord. Remember, he got rid of all the idols and all that? We should do the same. Like Asa, we should seek to obey the word of God, knowing that God will give us grace to do it because he gives grace to the people that know him to live this way. You know, we're called to be salt and light in this world, and we should live that way. I don't care how evil it is. 
We can do all this because Philippians 2.15 says, so that you believers will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We're to be lights in the, in the darkness of our world. This is how a believer is to live in an evil world. This is how we're to live. No matter how evil it gets, we can trust the Lord that he will help us always to be a testimony for him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your word. Once again, we pray that you'll help us to be a testimony in this world. Lord, we know it is an evil place where we have to deal with our own sin. Help us to do that, and we pray that we'll also be a shining light in the midst of a, of a dark world, Lord, knowing that it's going to get worse and worse. And, Lord, we have to stand for the truth. We pray you'll give us the grace to do so, and that we'll glorify you in this. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.